You can rebuild a motor, reboot your computer, even kickstart the old scooter. But what do you do when your own mojo is mutilated? That's where we step in. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Hey everybody and welcome on board the Big Red Bus. We've come to know as the Mojo Radio Show. We are heading due north towards Get Stuff Done Town this week. Uh, before we start, our brave team is with us here on the bus. Mayor, Mayor Peters, what have you got on your head? Bertie, I'm actually wearing a tinfoil hat just to keep the uh, aliens out of my brain. Uh, Lola, are you? How, how, how are you going, lovely Lola? Shutting down now. Man, I think everybody's going to lockdown. Robbo behind the wheel, uh, g- gas mask in hand. Yeah, I'm all good. I'm, I'm not scared. I'm not afraid. I'm good. I'm here. I turned up. I showed up ready to go again. You only turned up because our online order for our hunker down emergency studio pack <laughs> has arrived. Uh, let me go through the contents. Fish of a roast coffee beans. Thank you, Pete. Coffee, now, as the coffee machine and grinder have been serviced and are in working order. Uh, I went and bought us a new one just in case we were locked down for a while. Yep. Got a backup. Uh, Panic buying. <laughs> a carton of Revies, these little caffeine strips. Be, I tell you what, be very aware with the Revies. Do not mistake having a 40-gram Revies for a 100-gram Revies. I was in a meeting recently, gave a boy some samples, and I kid you not, <laughs> within three face. minutes, they were like they were like children on red cordial. They were bouncing off the walls because I gave them the hundreds. Oh, so uh, they're in the pack. A uh, couple of cartons of Dos Equis. Good, no Coronas. You don't hear Dos Equis virus. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> uh, we've got some chilli sauce and chilli bomb. Mm-hmm. Good to go. Yeah. Uh, and I tell you what, here's one company that is going gangbusters and rightly so right now, Athletic Greens, because oh. that right now building an immune system. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thank you very now, much. Now, for people in, in America and the UK and stuff, get on Athletic Greens. This is not a paid ad, but if there's one product that you need right now to build your immunity up, it's got to be that one, 75 ingredients. We've got some of that flowing in. Uh, I've got you a couple of boxes of Tim Tams before the shelves were cleared out. Nice. Is there anything we've missed? Toilet paper. <laughs> oh, and I think the alpha wrapper off the Revies are probably a little too small it's a bit tiny. for uh, yeah. necessities, yeah, yeah. especially for some portly people in the studio. Dear, dear. Right. The Mojo Radio Show. Do you know what's interesting? And this is just before we get into the show. Mm. This is a social experiment during these testing times of isolation. Yep. I think it's fascinating how people are or are not dealing with isolation. Now, on the just recently, Pink, Keith Urban, Chris Martin from Coldplay all did free online gigs to camera. And they all said, we know you're going stir crazy in isolation. It's been 24 hours for God's sake. <laughs> yeah. Do we are we that uncomfortable by ourselves that we need a distraction? Why after 24, why aren't people taking the opportunity to sit? And just read a book, listen to a back catalogue of podcasts, create, build something, create something, make something, cook something, journal, write the book you've always wanted to write, tidy, get sorted, update your Evernote. I mean, I just, you know, some of the leaders that I've been working with have been saying, just take the time to simply sit and plan and actually strategize keeping the business alive, but also what are the possibilities into the near future? that are outside the category of what you do. Like Louis Vuitton have shut down their fragrance-making procedures and they're making hand sanitizers. There's an electric car company 
found a portion of their warehouse and set up an area to make masks. Gin distilleries are closing down to use the facility from gin distilling to make hand sanitizer. So yeah, right. I, I just think that the leaders, you know, do we do we actually need someone to amuse us 24-7? Mm. And what it goes back to for me when I when I saw these things and thought about it is we listen to all these shows, watch all these videos, read all these books. And I just think right now worldwide, this is a true test of personal values. Company cultures are being tested. Leadership's being tested. Personal resilience is being tested. These are all topics we've covered on the show. And sure, it's about curating all the stuff we see, read, and hear, take the key learnings. And now, if ever there's a time to execute, to help our workmates, our family, kids, help the elderly, for goodness sakes. Man, now's the time, but instead of just wasting our time watching these artists who think they're doing the right thing by entertaining us, do we not have enough, really? <laughs> I just don't get it. I would have thought so. But it, I, look, I mean, I guess... I guess they think they're doing the right thing and, and they're sort of yeah. doing contributing what they can, a bit like the bushfire concert we talked about a few weeks back. But you're right. I mean, it's now's the time to sit down and go, there, there's, we can't see it yet, but sooner or later there'll be a light at the end of the tunnel. How am I going to take advantage of that? Oh, I think when you get to light, I think you've got to, yes, that's true, but I think you've got to find yourself a way of creating some light to find your way to that light. And I think if we wait for the light at the end of the tunnel, that's doomsday. My point is take this time to say, how do you attack? Think outside what you traditionally would do. It's common for all your competitors to do this. What would be uncommon to do? And there's a lot of great examples now of people I've been collecting who are doing things that are completely 360 degrees from where they are in order to be able to survive, give people a mission, give people a source of revenue, and most of all, be of service to others. But I think if you wait to see the light end of the tunnel, it's going to be a long, long wait and that could be catastrophic for most businesses, whether you work for yourself or you work with a group of 50 people. I think it's stop the bleeding, do what you need to do now, which is great leadership, do it with resilience, communicate well, communicate regularly with empathy. But the other part is taking the time to say, if there was something else we could do, which may not be obvious, what would it be? And that's the and that's all the stuff we talk about in the show for seven seasons. I think this is an amazing, amazing test. Mm. If you're an airline pilot, are we saying then think outside the square about something else you could do completely? Is that like, you know, if you're an airline pilot who's been laid off because no one's flying, how does that work for them? So an airline pilot sitting at home has got access to the computer. There are students from China who fly to Australia on a regular basis to learn how to fly. He could do free tutorials. He could do tutorials one-to-one with students out of China who are also in isolation, people from Italy, people from Spain, anybody in isolation, could continue their learning with a pilot who's 20-odd years service in one of the greatest and safest airlines in the world. He could do tutorials. Mm. He could write his own workbook and manual on all the things they don't teach you at flight training school that you should know after working in the airlines for 20 years. What could I do? He could write that manual. So nice. I think it's inside and outside the industry. Uh, but it's amazing. And that's just, I mean, I'm just saying at the top of my head, yeah, that's yeah, what I'd be, I'd be suggesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but if you sat with that person at 1.5 metres and you had a <laughs> Dosecki and talked about it, man, you could come up with 10 or 12 different things that he could do. Mm. 
I mean, there, there's a book, for example, called The Checklist Manifesto, one of my favorite top 20 books of all time. And, the, and a portion of that book is about how important checklists are to a pilot. Okay, so at the top of my head, you go, that was a small portion of a book. How do I make it into something which is a free download, a free web tutorial, a coaching class? Because SOPs, that's, that's critical. Well, then that's also what's going to get us out of this whole pandemic. It's also what we need if we run a telecommunications company. So I think it's the thinking part and the sitting and pondering with a, with a beer or a good cup of fish river roast. <laughs> that's the juice. That, that's what you need. Don't you think? Don't, don't you think that makes sense? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. It's, it's funny because I, I, uh, I was, when I sort of said before, you know, thinking about the light at the end of the tunnel, when I've been thinking in the last couple of days about if I lose all my work, what, I'm, what am I going to do with the time? I've been thinking along the lines of, okay, well, let's get ready for when things do pick up. I, I've always wanted to build a website selling work parts and stuff that I've made, but you're right. Maybe I should be turning around and thinking, well, what can I do with a podcast? What can I do with, a, with video that is of interest that people might be interested in? So, yeah, you're right. Airline pilot, 20 years goes to the air, all the, air, all, all the aircraft are grounded. That's common. Okay, well, let's do the opposite, which we talked about last week. Let's do the opposite. Let's put, the, let's put the stairway to heaven to it. So rather than a male singer, let's make a female singer. Let's take that aircraft, so how would you use it? What if you had a process where you could completely sterilize that aircraft, sterilize the guy who's flying it, and he could fly to remote areas to pick up people who are in absolute remote areas, Northern Territory, for example, very remote area, have got a number of cases. Okay, the, 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 it's been sealed off, but imagine somebody in there who can't get the treatment, they don't have the facilities. What if you had like a flying doctor service type thing where you could donate your time and your expertise to go and be of service to others? I'm just saying that it's the sitting and strategizing and thinking of what's common and then what will be uncommon and challenging it. And I don't think there's any category we can't do that in. And I think the challenge comes of not being distracted and not waiting for the light at the end of the tunnel, but attacking, which is all the stuff we talk about, resilience, grit, mental toughness, all the stuff Joe DeSan, everybody talks about. And I, I think there's massive opportunities for us, not just in a revenue sense, but I think also in a being of service, creating a new mission, being of service to others, Anyway, I think, I think there's lots of opportunity. The Mojo Radio Show. Our guest this week is Charlie Gilkey. He's the author of a book called Start Finishing. Top title. Great book. I actually read it. I really enjoyed the book. It talks about how to actually get things done, not just the doing part, the process, the systems up, but the psychology of it, and the importance of sharing unfinished work to be able to see the next step. Now, we're good at starting things. We know that. We're very good at starting things. We've talked about that before in the show. We're not good at actually seeing them through. So how, how do we go about starting to finish what we started? Charlie's book, Start Finishing, has got a nine-step method for how you convert an idea in your mind into a project. How do you address the challenges that you face in order to get this thing up and running and make it happen on a reality-based schedule. Charlie, this is a great book. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thanks for having me on. When you meet somebody for the first time and they ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? 
That's one of the more difficult things you're going to ask me today, I believe. <laughs> we like to start with the tough questions. Right? It's going to be, you know, all down here from here. Um, you know, I like to have that clear, concise. So usually what I say is I'm an author and I'm a business growth advisor um, because that gives people the biggest hook. But there are a lot of ends because I'm an author and I'm a podcaster and I'm a blogger um, and I'm an executive coach. And so there's all these ends in there. But if I'm being succinct and someone asks me what I do, like if I'm just getting groceries at the supermarket, then it's normally just like, hey, I'm an author and I'm a business consultant. Um, and that normally does pretty well. Do you know, something I haven't heard you explain is as a business consultant in your company, with your wife is called Productive Flourishing. Why that name? What does that name mean to you? That goes back to, um, it's actually the roots of the work of Start Finishing as well. But um, I had two really crappy website names before Productive Flourishing, and I'm not saying that's a great one. But really what I was really focused on at the time, and I still am, is this intersection between personal development and productivity. And so it's super important to me because productive modifies flourishing in the sense that the end of all our actions, and this you can read this from Aristotle to um, the Dalai Lama, like the end of all our actions is thriving and happiness. Um, but all too often in the productivity sort of space, it's just focused on the doing, 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 and getting better and faster and smarter. And blah, blah, blah. But it's no one sitting like, hey, are we happier? There's just this assumption that better, faster, stronger, more equals happy. But, you know, when we really look at it, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that a lot. And so um, it was really a um, way of saying we become by doing, right? We flourish through the things that we do in this world that create that. But again, um, you know, a counter to much of the productivity conversation that I have for people is like, if you're doing this, the things that are making you faster, better, stronger, but you're not happier, it's not leading you closer to thriving, guess what? You're not being productive um, because this very precious life and the one, the only one that we know you have is on this treadmill of more and faster and better and stronger where we really need to be on the treadmill of meaning, happiness and thriving. And I'm just going to take a little off ramp and go to the book. And something you said in the book was the primary consideration is thus, not how your best work will support your livelihood, but how your best work fits into a meaningful life for you. What what makes a truly meaningful life for Charlie? Oh, okay. So I lied. This is maybe the second, the first hardest question. Um, but no, I... I... <laughs> I've been having a lot of these talks. No, seriously, guys. Um, so I just turned 40, and I'm a, my birthday is January 2nd. And so I'm one of those like really fortunate people that you know has a major birthday at the dawn of a new decade. Um, and so it was really a lot of conversations with my wife of like, what what does thriving look like as I approach the second half of my life? Um, and it, in broad strokes, it's pretty much what I what I'm doing now. I love teaching. I love um, writing. I love making stuff that helps people do the things that they want to do. And I also have plenty of the fun of, you know, gaming, both tabletop and video game and role playing and exercise. So I got like a lot of the things. And so flourishing for me, um, you know, specifically for me, looks like this flow of creation, community, teaching, exercise, and fun and joy all sort of wrapped up into things. And um, I just am incredibly blessed and fortunate that I, I get paid well to do it as well. When you, just to continue this little off-ramp here, Charlie, when you go through that discussion about what a thriving or a flourishing life looks like for you, 
where does where does your wife fit into that in terms of you deciding having those conversations? Because I think it seems today that, and I like that that the comment you made at the start of the show. You said it's the, the intersection of personal development and productivity. A lot of people are pushing the whole productivity thing and not really think about the personal development side of things. And then we've never seen divorce rates so high, depression, anxiety. There's a split somewhere. And quite often I wonder whether it's not that conversation you had in your own mind not being had in conjunction with a partner to make sure that you're both on the same page. How do you approach that? So it's been shown time and time again through the studies that the single biggest predictor of happiness is a healthy relationship with their significant other. Um, and I think people forget that, right? And so I've been incredibly fortunate and blessed in that, um, you know, I've been married to my wife, Angela, or we've been together since 97, okay? And so, and so you can sort of do the math. We've been together longer than we've been apart when we look at that. And it's just key to it. And so... Um, I think there is no version of thriving for me that does not include um, Angela's thriving at the same time. And so it's how do we build this life together and how uh, how do we build this? And again, we were just talking yesterday about this and that, you know, she was talking about what her ideal day looked like. And so she's like, so what does your ideal day look like? And, you know, so I told her and what I what we both noticed is like they were really complimentary, but they weren't identical. Right. She had some activities during the day that really wouldn't be my jam. But the way that what was ideal for both of us made space for both of us to have what we needed and sort of filling those. um, I'll I'll just riff on Jonathan Fields, um, you know, from the how to get how to live a good life. He's got different buckets. So the vitality bucket, the connection bucket. And I forget that. But anyways. And so we have different ways of filling those buckets that are complementary. But I think. you know, there's that cliche, um, and I might get in trouble for this, but like happy wife, happy life, or happy wife, happy life. Um, it's cliche, but there's also a lot of truth to it. What I would say is happy partner, happy life, right? And there's a way, there's a way in which, um, you, you know, the the true goal, and again, this is from Stephen Covey's um, Seven Habits, is like what we're looking for is interdependence, not codependence, and not independence, right? But interdependence. And when I look at what really helps people thrive, it's interdependence in their significant – in their relationships with their significant others, interdependence with their friends, interdependence with their community, and interdependence with their coworkers and professional colleagues. And so um, – you know, one of the big things that I want to shift the conversation about productivity around, and, and I do it in a subversive way in Start Finishing, when I start talking about success packs and how the real goal is to wrap other people into your projects, is we need to move beyond personal productivity and individual productivity and start thinking in terms of collective productivity, because as a species, that's who we are, right? Um, but all too often, I think we fall into sort of a solipsistic, you know, just working on my own thing space. And it's just not, as you mentioned, um, when you look at the statistics, we're not happy. We're not financially thriving. We're not physically healthy. We got to do something different here. You mentioned your friend, Jonathan Fields, who actually is in your book. He described you as having an unshakable calm. Where, where does that come from, Charlie? Is that something you consciously had to develop? Yes. Uh, so it's family of origin stuff and just looking at, you know, some of the patterns and things around some of the conversations. And 
um, that going on. But also being a military officer will do that to you. Like I realized, you know, when I was deployed to um, in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom during that period of time, like I used to listen to a lot of alternative rock. I used to listen to a little bit of metal and things like that. But I was there's just one day I had this deep knowing that it was time for me to stop listening to that while I was overseas because it's like my troops, I was the second lieutenant at the time. Um, and so it was much more in a tactical, tactical leadership mode, but it's like my, my troops don't need an amped up, riled up leader, right? They need someone who's calm, who could look at a situation, figure out what's going on and sort of bring the nerves down. And so, um, I switched a lot of music styles and I switched to a lot more, um, daily practices and eat down to music choices, down to um, just all sorts of different things that um, has really made that my normal, um, my normal frequency. And so um, it's actually pretty upsetting for people who know me now for them to actually see me upset because it's not, it's not the way they naturally know me. And it's not, I want to be clear, it's not something that it's an artifice that I'm putting on. It's just you practice it long enough and that becomes who you are. It's really interesting. We had the same, we interviewed a Navy SEAL in season six and he had the same thing that he would wake up in the morning and the soundtrack was Megadeth and his partner would say, okay, Grimm's awake. And he said, I put on my armor to go to battle. But when we asked him about the music that he would listen to now today to get his mojo working, it was all ballads. It was all soft it was really interesting, the dichotomy of how music shaped the attitude and approach that he took. If, if we stay on that military background just for a second, something I'm curious about, that you, you were deployed to Operation Iraqi Freedom at the age of 24, and you were doing logistics, and you had 46 people underneath you, 20 vehicles, and it occurred to me that's, that's a lot to have to get sorted and plan at that age. When you think back, Charlie, did you have your own system or processes that you personally followed that you developed in order to stay on top of that? Because that's, that's a lot of people, a lot of vehicles in the heat of battle. How, how did you go about sorting yourself at the age of 24? That's a really good question. Um, and I appreciate sort of the, the background research there. Um, Yes. Yeah, so part of, without going too deep down the military rabbit hole, like what I knew, I, I grew up in a military family. My dad was a sergeant, right? And and why that's important is I knew the way the army worked. Um, and I knew, especially at 24, when I was, you know, I was in charge of people that had been in the military longer than I had been alive, that my key to my key to success was not me being the person who knew how to do everything, but me figuring out who knew how to do what and let them do their jobs. And so, I was pretty clear with my troops, and and just I mean, because there's a whole thing there about second lieutenants. You can watch movies, you can figure that out. But usually, um, you know, they're they're not really trusted and they're not very capable. And so they can get people in a lot of trouble, and they think they know more than they do. And I knew that, you know. So part of Part of my sort of general Charlie OS here is realizing that, and it's kind of influenced by Socrates and the philosophers, but like there's a lot I don't know. There's a lot I don't know how to do, and there's a lot I can't do. And knowing that allowed me to approach situations where like I just knew that it wasn't my job to be the know-how guy. I knew basically, um, and this is what I teach some of my clients now, it's like anytime you're in an executive leadership position, your job is not in the domain of how. 
your your job is in the domain of why and what. So if I can figure out what we needed to do and why, it was always my troops' jobs to figure out how to do it. And so that was really part of my OS, as it were, part of my my way of sorting myself is just realizing what my lane was, what I was really good at, and what I wasn't, and not trying to be anything above that. So there are just, you know, um, I spent a lot of times in vehicles, which I don't know how to drive. Um, I don't know how to fix, you know, so I could change tires and basic stuff like that. But if anything happened like that, like it wasn't my job to fix it. I was doing something else. And this may be over detailed here, but there was a point in which I had a new driver. So as an officer, you're assigned to drive and they're normally the person that does that. So when I would go on mission, I'd have sort of my default, but he was on leave. So I had a new one. And so I had to tell my new driver, I was like, look, um, whenever we're going through some of these situations and I say lock and load and things like this, like it's unlikely that I'm actually going to fire my weapon. So if we get, un- if we get in a, an assault or if we get into an ambush, if I'm sitting there laying in the prone shooting an M16, something is really, really wrong because that's not my job. My job is to command the fight and to get my gun trucks where they needed to go and so on and so forth. So again, that's sort of a fractal of what I'm saying is like just knowing what you're there to do, knowing what your job is and telling or, and enrolling other people around what their jobs are to support that. And in some ways, that's what I still do to this day. So if I could take you back to that time and with all you've learned, all you've written, all you've covered in your own podcast, if you could walk up to that young 24-year-old who's in charge of that many people all those vehicles in a logistics situation. There is somewhere a 24-year-old who is in an accounts department, working in a local government department, working in a school. There's somebody in same but different situation. If you could walk back to that 24-year-old now, having done the book, having all the conversations you've had and put your arm around that guy and just pull him aside, guy or girl, and say, hey, mate, here's one bit of advice that I would give you knowing what's ahead of you. What would you say? I would probably say, you know what, Um, you're more powerful than you know. You may have stories in there about how you're uniquely defective, about how um, you don't have what it takes, and all the energy that you spend to try to prove to other people that that's not true can be better spent showing other people how they're shining and building other people around yourself and your work um, to really push it forward. Cause at the end of the day, it's not about what you're capable of. It's about what your team is capable of. And I think with a, with a, with that mindset, you can go far. And so, um, yeah, that's probably what I would say. Gold rubber, camo, camo gold, camouflage gold right there. Bang. Camo gold. Camo gold. We've never had that before. I just like talking about <laughs> M16s at six o'clock in the morning. I mean, that's awesome. <laughs> I think I, I think I'm one coffee short of being on the same page with an M16, but I'm certainly getting there. Um, you just this is interesting, Charlie. We we're in our seventh season, and we have had this, I guess, underlying thread around, and it's something you just said. You said the stories, and I've heard you talk about the stories we tell ourselves, and. You also call it all the theory we have of ourselves, which I kind of ties back to this identity thing, which has been a thread that I want to pull upon. In, in, in this modern, modern part of your world, since you finished your book, Start Finishing, has your theory of yourself changed? Has the story of you changed since doing the book? 
I'm not sure that it's changed. It's been reaffirmed um, in the sense of um, it's super easy to get, especially when you have an online business and you're a writer, it's super easy for you to get locked into the silos of your own sort of business, your own writing, and, you know, to just um, forget the impact that you can have on people and to forget how you can show up for people at the right time. And so that was the biggest thing that I've really enjoyed about the tour and you know, both the physical tour and the virtual tour is just being reminded that like, oh yeah, there's this big world of people out there that um, are receptive to the message that I'm sharing and it truly helps them. And so the, so the, the affirmation is really like, keep going. And you, this is something that, you know, it's not that Seth Godin has said this to me personally, but it, he's in my mind, in the back of my head, whenever I know it's like, stop hiding. Like, where are you hiding? And what can you do to get out in front of that? Right. And so it's like, keep going, stop hiding. As part of your, the book, start finishing, if we just continue down this little off ramp of stories and the theory we have of ourselves, do we almost have to have a part of our identity, Charlie, that we are a finisher, that we we are the other person who gets things done and closes them out? Because 70%, it's said that 70% of New Year's resolutions by the start of February are, are, are done. They're, they've gone. They've disappeared. And we had a guy at the start of season two who quoted a stat from one of the big accounting firms saying 63% of all company strategies never see the light of day. So like your book said, we're good at starting, but then we're not good at finishing. Is a step, and I guess I'm trying to tie a few things together because another one of your friends who you talk about a lot um, is, is James Clear, who we had on the show at the end of summer in season six we did an interview with him at Bondi Beach and he's been on the show a couple of times and we're big fans. He talked about to change a habit, you've got to have the right identity. Is that something that you have had experience with? Do you believe that to be a finisher, to start finishing, that should be part of your makeup? In a nuanced way, yes. So here's what I'd say. I don't necessarily think that you have to think that you're a finisher to become one. I think what you have to dislodge is the idea that you're not a finisher, that you're not the type of person who does these types of things. And so many of us, unfortunately, because of our negativity biases, we anchor on to negative stories about what we're not capable of doing that keeps us from being capable. And so even just shifting from, I'm not a planner, I'm not a finisher, I'm, I can't follow through, I don't show up, I, you know, all of those different things that we tell ourselves in those either dark moments of the soul or sometimes it's every day in, in the brighter day, right? Um, to dislodge and say, I can, I will, uh, it's possible for me, or even to shift and to say, historically, I have not been good at follow through shifts that narrative away from anchoring it about what you're not to create space for what you could be. Um, and so I think that's the important bit. And at a certain point, you realize, wait a second, I am a finisher. I have done things. And part of the reason why we get so stuck with new strategies and resolutions, you know, it's that time of the year and things like that is because I think we don't first acknowledge all the things we are already doing and, um, you know, a really important thing that, that I want people to think about and, I, you know, I write about it in the book is that, unfortunately, when we look at um, what we're doing, what we do is we 
prioritize and overlook at the economic work and say, you know, I'm doing that, not doing that. And we completely don't see or discount the work of our lives. But when you look at where people's time, energy, and attention goes, a lot of it is on the work of their lives. It's on their child care. It's on their partner relationships. It's on the ways that they show up in the communities and churches and things like that. But we're not counting those as being productive. We're not counting those as projects. Um, and so I think the trouble that we have is that we approach it anytime we start thinking about a new way of, of becoming and being in the world. We approach it as if we have a blank slate. But it's not even that's not even true. We approach it as if we have all of this negative baggage that we have to fight against, as opposed to saying, like, no, actually, I have a bachelor's degree. I finished something, right? I finished a bunch of courses, or actually, I've moved across the United States, or actually, I got that job promotion, or actually, like when I look at what I actually do week in and week out, it's not that I can't finish things, it's that I'm committing to too many things. And that, I think, when we start talking about priorities, where we start talking about values, I think that's where we create um, some nexes of change um, for people. But as long as it's like I'm not doing, I'm not doing enough, and I got to do more, like that's a bridge to just a lot of suffering and frustration and resentment and overwhelm. And so, again, I, I just think starting from the perspective of like, let's take an account of really who you truly are and can be, and use that to step forward as opposed to just this very myopic, diminished view of yourself that says you can't, you're not, you won't, you haven't, all of those negative words, right? That just keeps us stuck. To, to, to continue on from that and to pick up on your answer, use the word priority. And something that I took from the book, you said not every desire becomes a priority, but our deepest desires inform those priorities especially if we believe Mahatma Gandhi's quote, action expresses priority. Just, just unwrap that for us, Charlie. Yeah, I think a lot of people confuse aspirations with priorities, right? And aspirations are just all the things you might want to do, all the, all the people you might want to become, all the things you might want to own. And there's nothing wrong with having a near infinity of aspirations, Um. But it turns out that the way people actually make decisions, what gets on their – so you know, Gandhi's quote was, action expresses priority. I'm going to extend that a little bit further. What's on your schedule expresses priority. And that trips a lot of people up because if you look at your schedule over the last two weeks and four weeks and your you know, aspirations or the things you've told yourself of who you want to be are not on that, guess what? It's not a real priority, meaning you have made other choices – that had more weight that actually got on your calendar, right? And these other things, something else is going on with them, right? Um, and so think about it this way. For the parents out there, um, you know, if you take your kid to school and they get sick at school, like you don't have to do this big priority matrix. You don't have to figure out what's going on. Like you go pick your kid up and you take care of them. That gets on the schedule. Um, we could think of other things like that that do, that do get on the schedules. And so the question becomes – for all of these other things that are not hitting the schedule, what's going on there? And what I'll also pause here is, and it's kind of a tie on to the fact that we're not counting um, some types of projects, especially the projects of our life as projects. Um, a lot of people have priorities that they don't want to acknowledge as priorities, like they don't want to claim a priority. So for instance, 
Um, there are a lot of would-be entrepreneurs who have such a high priority around financial security that the priority of financial security keeps them from getting starting a business on their schedule. And they beat themselves up about it and say, you know what, like, you know, they're trying to work a way around it. But I would rather encourage them to say, you know what, financial security is a really important thing to you. So you have one of two options, or there's a lot of options, but, you know, an obvious option. One is keep the job and figure out other ways, keep the job for the financial security and figure out other ways to tap into that creative wellspring or that sort of innovative wellspring that's making you want to start a business or build a strategy and a pathway that that has as close as possible economic security um, or financial security tied into it. But again, fighting that reality that financial security is important, again, is another one of those bridges to suffering and another one of those bridges to like frustration and things like that. But it's just saying, you know what? Sure, I would like to start a business, and it's really important for me to have a consistent paycheck to put food on the table for my family, and that is my priority. Great. Let's stop all the head trash. Let's stop all of the sort of rummaging around these other possibilities because we know at the end of the day what truly matters to you is something that you're already doing and you're not broken. There's nothing wrong with that. How do you lean into that and with those constraints build a pathway to thriving for yourself? There seems to be some guilt that goes with that, Charlie. When people say, well, my kids or my partner is a priority, but then when you dedicate seemingly working time towards that priority, then the tribe says, no, if you're a hustler, you should be using every waking hour grinding and hustling. So when you do spend time on what you say is your priority, which is going to soccer with the kids or picking up somebody from work and going out for a treat, there seems to be an element of doubt. That, uh, there seems to be an element of guilt that goes with this that precludes us from actually following through on our priorities, which goes back to what Gandhi said, is that when they really look at their calendar for the week gone by, the action expresses priority, but it wasn't. Do you see that a lot? Yeah, I see that a lot, especially in the entrepreneurial circles. Um, and here's what I just have to say about that. Like, it, it goes back to a point that you mentioned earlier. Statistically, something like 80% of people are dealing with mental health issues or financial insecurity or physical disability, right? Health issues and things like that. Um, many of which are of their own choosing, right? And not saying that people who have genetically, you know, genetically biased, you know, depression and things like that are at fault, but there are a lot of things that we can do on those three fronts um, to mitigate the worst parts of those. And yet, these are the very same people that are yelling at us that we need to hustle harder, that we need to push more, so on and so forth. And it's like, from what perspective, right, are you coming from <laughs> that that I should pay attention to that, right? And it's I think it's a Rumi, like never follow the a Rumi quote, never follow the maps, or it's a, this is a paraphrase, right? Never follow the maps made by people who never been where you're trying to go, right? <laughs> and yet that's exactly what we do. Right. Is all these people building maps for us and they're not there. They haven't been there. They're not going to go there. Why should why are their maps valid for us? So, yes, there is a lot of pressure. I mean, and that's, again, part of who we are as this type of species is, you know, peer pressure and, you know, collective norms guide a lot of our behaviors. But or and when we look at where following those norms, following those suggestions take us, many of us don't want to go there. So, yes. Lots of guilt, um, or lots of, um, 
innocuous or unconscious shame being thrown around about that. Um, but again, if that's not the type of life that you want to live, or let me pause here. We'll, we'll speak um, specifically about business, but we could generalize to careers as well. If you are, if you are building a business that is taking you further away from the person you want to be in this world, you need to rethink that business because that business is not successful. You are not thriving, right? Um, sure, it may be a means to the end, but be very, very clear about that, right? Um, and I think we can also – we live in a world – and I think people – you know, I realize that I'm coming from a certain um, background, and I understand I've had a lot of really um, great opportunities that have shown up. But we live in a world where we can work remotely. We can choose to work for – a lot of different companies. We, there's a lot of like economic, if not mobility, there's at least some lateral laterality that we can do that we can use to find the types of careers and work and businesses and crafts that really do help us live the type of life we want to live. And unfortunately, I don't think enough of us are really leaning into that because of the peer pressure, because of you know um, what's going on on Instagram. And it for me personally, like there was a time. I don't know, maybe 10 years ago where I was sort of getting sucked into that vorpal of like what everyone else is doing. But then when I really thought about it and I'll, I'll pick on like the, the, um, global nomads, you know, like the people who pick up and move and they're all over the place doing those types of things. Right. It looks really great. And I'm glad they're happy with it. But when I sit with it, I was like, fundamentally, I don't want that. Just not, if I wanted that, I would go after it because it's the type of person that I am. But fundamentally, like I have no interest in in moving every two, three weeks and seeing the world in that way. Like there's different ways I want to see the world. And so just seeing all of those pictures on Instagram and Facebook and all those types of things, they, they have about as much appeal to me as watching like someone peel paint. Like someone really loves doing that. It's not me, right? And so I think when you know what you truly value and the type of life that you want to live, or at least, and, and I'm going to pause here because when we say the type of life that I think that can evoke a lot of existential crises for people, because we're still, we're all still trying to figure out what we want to be when we grow up. Right. And so I don't want to make it sound over lawfully, but when you can select activities and, and ways and, and stuff to do in the world that generates happiness and you allow that your happiness is enough, then you can let go of, I think a lot of that pressure, because again, if you're doing you and you're happy, you're helping other people, you're taking care of yourself and your family and things like that, what's, you know, what's anyone else really have to say about that? Cause especially if they're not doing that themselves. Man, there's a lot to unpack there. I'm, I'm going to, there's, there's two things from that Charlie. I just want you to sort of dig into a little bit. If I, Reverse the, the bus about five minutes. You use the term making space. So I want to tie making space together with something else you said, which was finding what's truly valuable to you. Like what's 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 true value? What what actually is your priority? And to do that, you have to make space. And a term I've heard you use is displacement. We have to displace something. Just talk me through that in people's minds because I suspect what people say or write down as their priority, they're trying to then shove that into everything else that's going on. Explain displacement. 
Yeah, so displacement is the idea that anything you choose to do displaces a practical infinity of other things you may have done with that time. And we can get super granular with this. That 15, 20 minutes that you get sucked into Facebook, guess what? That's 15 to 20 minutes that you could have done. Um, you could have meditated. You could have played a guitar. You could have played a video game. You could have chased your dog around the house. You could have um, you know, been intimate with your partner. There's all sorts of things that you can do in that amount of time. But we don't, I think, think about the displacement cost of everything that we do. And so to make space, um, well, and I'll say this. Because so many of the ways of the ways in which we um, find ourselves distracted and interrupted are due to technology. Basically, what we're doing is battling the army of super smart engineers whose job it is to hack your attention and to keep you wanting things and to keep you on those devices and to keep you basically they're not trying to do that to keep you away from yourself but it has this displacement cost or this displacement cost in that that's what you're doing so um you're not able to suit yourself and it reminds me of a line from jack johnson's um oh crap i'm gonna remember forget the name of song but the line goes um and everybody thinks listen everybody thinks that everybody else nobody knows anything about themselves because they're too worried about somebody else, right? And so because we're so busy worried about somebody else or something else, we don't know anything about ourselves, and we stay in that cycle. So making space, and, and one of the reasons I think people struggle with making space, once they get over the guilt of the, you know, not always hustling and not always doing and not using their time productively, is that sometimes it could be really super uncomfortable to sit with yourself and realize you don't know who you are, or to sit with yourself and realize that, there are parts about yourself that you don't like or to sit with yourself and realize there are choices that you've made that you wish you wouldn't. There's a lot of discomfort in that space originally or initially that I think can keep people from sitting in that space. Um, but it's in that space. Once you learn to work with that energy that you can also be go into a dreaming space, not, not just a resent, not just a regretful space um, or an uncomfortable space, but you can go into a dreaming and um, in a, spa a dreaming space and a, a space of possibility that allows you to start figuring out what does truly matter for you and matter to you. And what's really important about that is I don't know how often a lot of people reflect back on the experience of their day or their week and really pull out the highlights. And, you know, there's gratitude journalings and there's all sorts of ways that you can do this, but really to look and say, what was great of the day from the day? What did I enjoy today? What what had me on fire today? Um, what made me smile? What made me laugh? What gave me the warm fuzzies? And documenting that and just treating yourself like a test subject until you figure out what those things are and you just do more of those. Something that's interesting with your work, Charlie, and the book is, and we've sort of gone in and out of the book as we've talked through this interview. We've talked about James Clear, who's in the book, Seth Godin, probably one of the great writers, bloggers, marketers in the world, is in the book. Jonathan Fields, your friend, successful blogger, author, podcaster, is in the book. And there's a, there's a, there's a bunch of very successful people in the book. When you were writing it, let's take James, for example, who saw 1.1 million in his first year of Atomic Habits. Did you fall into the comparison trap? Did you fall into, whilst you were writing, starting to compare Charlie to James and looking at what he's achieved and starting to doubt yourself? 
Um, there are definitely moments for that. The, the trouble with running with friends and peers and clients who are super successful is that when you're not living up to their sort of level of success, it's easy to be like, so like, why am I at the table? Like they're clearly winning. What am I doing here? Um, but I guess if they keep inviting you to the table, you have a place there. Right. Um, and so that it, that's easy to do. But one of the things that I did was actually convert that. Right. And instead of, Oh, there's, there's this whole sort of side rant. You probably don't want me to go down, but I get so frustrated about, um, I, I get so frustrated to the degree to which people hide their footnotes and hide their influences um, because they need to be the expert. And so taking James Clear, for the example, like I couldn't write a book about habits or I couldn't write a book that mentioned habits without mentioning James. Right. I just couldn't. Right. What, what am I going to do? Like pretend that he hasn't written that book, especially since, you know, um, we have a history together. We're friends and I've worked with him in different ways. Right. That would just be just it feels wrong. Right. And there are certain topics where when I was writing the book, I was like, well, I could parrot what they've said. I could pretend like they didn't say it or I could just ask them to say what they would say. And that's what I did. Um, and so for me, you know, and so that I, I joke because there's also like Mike Vardy's in the book. And Mike is actually like if you looked at it from typical business analysis, Mike is one of my biggest competitors. Right. Um, as far as it goes, Mike Vardy from Timecrafting, brilliant guy. I love Mike stuff, but I couldn't write this book without including Mike. I couldn't write this book without including Susan. I couldn't write this book without including the people that I included. Um, and then after I wrote the book, I felt my own sort of shame way that there were people that I was like, oh, I could have included Larry. I could have included Mike. I could have included some of these other folks in there too. So yes, absolutely. You know, when you look at that and I was, you know, fortunate that James book James, success like was not necessarily on books nearly nearly as much as it was like there, there's some time under the belt but you know for me it's like going back to what i said earlier to my to you asked me about the other 24 what i would say to that 24 year old person that's true for me too it's like look these guys are part of my team these these people are part of my team we're involved in each other's works these are my colleagues these are people whose work i want to shine if they're winning we're winning and that's good enough for me it's a big barrier for a lot of us, particularly I think with social media, is this comparison trap. And the book you talked about, you said it's more than just finding the motivation or drive to do your best work. You said you have to address the parts of your life that are keeping you from doing it. What, what do you see as being the primary part of our life that's keeping us from finishing? I might have to give you three different things. Um, but I'll, I'll start there. So, um, I talk about the air sandwich in chapter two and what, it, what, so everyone's sort of caught up with this. Like imagine your life such that you had, you're on this top layer of bread, like your life is a sandwich. The top layer of bread is your big goals, your dreams, that best version of yourself, your best work, all of that sort of visionary. It's the new year, new decade sort of stuff that you think about. And then on the bottom, that bottom slice of bread is your day-to-day -day reality and grind. And it seems for a lot of people that there's a lot of air between the two, which is why I call it the air sandwich. But that's an illusion because really what's in there is five different um, core universal human challenges. And the reason I want to say core and universal means that we all have them. And people think that they just have those problems themselves, but we all have them. 
I'll list, I'll list five, but the two that are I think are the most important for most of us are um, head trash, which is the limiting beliefs we have ourselves, those stories. It's, it's sort of that thread of identity that we've been touching and jumping in and off of. So the stories we tell about ourselves and the cultural um, norms that we choose to accept. And then the second one is competing priorities, which we've also talked about. And I think between those two, like those are my go-to whenever people are stuck, right, and not really taking action, is getting their val- getting their priorities aligned and really seeing what stories are telling about themselves and what we can do to get of it. And I know there are some people who are coaches and mindset coaches and things like that that can assault the head trash stuff like directly. I found in my work over the last 12 years that the best way for me to counteract some of that is to get people doing things that prove that piece of head trash wrong, right? So if they say I'm a terrible writer and we can get them to write pieces that are good or great or excellent, then we have immediate proof that that belief was wrong, right? That is false of the world. Um, it's something that are choosing to believe. And so that's my way of working at that. Um, and so I, I think those are two of the places that I would start with when, you know, why people's day-to-day in their big dreams for themselves are not um, not touching. And the second is, is just going back to trying too much, trying to do too much, to be, to be clear. And um, I think there's that quote, and I don't think I used it in the book because I couldn't find the original source. Maybe I did. Who knows? Um, but it's like people underestimate – they overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in a decade. And that cre- that creates all sorts of problems for us because um, we think that we have to do everything right damn now. Like if we can't do it now, something's wrong with us, and so we stack ourselves up with way too much going on. But I really want people to be thinking about like, okay, let's take this meta project, capital P project, right? And you know, these projects, um, you know, we tend to have projects that show up or capital P projects that show up every three to five years in the sense of maybe you get a new job and there's a three to five year on-ramp before you get um, promoted or you take another job. And our social lives tend to, our social and personal lives tend to have that same sort of pattern. But thinking in terms of, okay, what's, what type of project, what something that I could commit to for three to five years, really dig into that and finish it and move on to the next thing because the reality is why why projects feature so much throughout the book is that finished projects are the bridge between your current life and the life you want to live but it's not all projects it's certain types of projects i call them best work projects but it's those best work projects that create that bridge between where you are and where you want to be and if you're not doing those projects guess what you're going to stay stuck probably because there are other projects that you're doing that are displacing those best work projects and keeping you busy and keeping you in motion. But like that rocking chair that's in motion, you're not actually sensing progress or seeing progress. Is there a relationship, Charlie, between the, the word you use is best work? What's the, is there a, an intersection, an association between what you term best work and ultimately what we believe our mission or purpose in life is? I think so. I don't know that it's necessary. Um, and um, I think there's a very tight connection. Um, 
but so this is a philosopher of me talking. Anytime when we start talking about necessary connection, I get a, I slow down, right? Um, because <laughs> I, because I'm like, hmm, I'm not sure that is a, that is a necessary collect, connection. But I think here's what I do think: um, if you are doing a lot of projects that are not aligned with your calling or what you think you're here to do or you know your vision for yourself. Um, one, you're going to be really unsatisfied because you're always going to be going north when, or I'll say it this way since it's more uh, metaphorically correct, you're always going to be going east when you, you know, would rather be going north and you're never really going to get where you're trying to go. Um, and so I'm, I'd have to think more about that necessary connection between best work and one's calling. Um, but I do know they are very, very tightly connected. Do you know what's interesting, Charlie, is that Robbo now will believe and introduce himself as a philosopher because he is always asking himself, I'm not sure if I need another biscuit. I, I must be a philosopher. <laughs> hey, um, a quote from Bertrand Russell is, the problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are so certain and the wise are so full of doubt. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, yeah it, it, it's a thing. Yeah, sounds about thing. right. It's a thing. We'll put that up on the wall. It's, it's, that's going on the studio wall. It's, it's a, a thing. thing. <laughs> hey, uh, Charlie, on that, you, you, it's it's not a it's not a, a well known fact, Sunny Jim, but you study philosophy. What what has that brought to your work in productivity? Where is the intersection between philosophy and productivity? Is there one for you? Um. I think the connection is tighter between philosophy and personal development um, because when you when you really go back to especially the Greeks and you look back at the the philosophy that happened in sort of the 500 BCE timeframe um, where they were really having some of these rich conversations, they were really talking about thriving. I mean that was Aristotle's stick. That was Plato, that was Socrates. And so really when you think – it's kind of humbling for me in a way. It's humbling and um, – I forget the other word, but – I'm a part of a conversation that's at least, you know, 3,000 years long, right? People want to come into the space and say something new and novel and think they have a new idea. And usually I could track it back to something Plato, Socrates, or one of the Stoics said. And so we're part of this very, very rich conversation. I think where it comes in is, as far as productivity goes, is when you start thinking about patterns and, recogn and recognizing, you know, like, what lies under our actions, and seeing some of those things, philosophy is really, really good once you once you get into it about um, teaching pattern recognition. And so um, I think it comes in there. And I also think it comes in really when it comes time to um, – hmm, I'll pause. No, I think it's more on the personal development side of things is, is where it comes in. But then again, my website's Productive Flourishing. And so I think at a certain point, you can't really divorce productivity from personal development. Something I heard you say – in an interview, which I loved, you said, we don't need an accountability buddy to eat ice cream. And I think the same applies to our socials of people watching YouTube or going through Insta. We don't, we don't need somebody to hold us accountable to do that every day and to spend hours on things that are not, a, not really a priority in terms of our wellness, our growth. Why, why do we struggle to stay with things that are a priority, that will bring a fulfilling life. Why do we not struggle with the distractions and the things that aren't empowering 
and we need accountability buddy. But the things that do count, we struggle so much with. Um, I think there are a few things at play there. One is that when it comes time to, uh, it comes time for that second piece or when it comes time to do our best work. So I'll just use that, that wrapper for this type of work that we struggle with sometimes. Um, part of what's going on is that it actually truly, truly matters to us, which means success or failure truly matters to us. If we say we're going to do something that we think is core to our identity and then we fail at that, that is much, much harder for us. Um, and, you know, none of us thrash, which thrash is the the term I have for the meta work, the flailing, the quote unquote research that we'll do around our best work projects, but don't actually push them forward. Um, none of us thrash about None of us thrash about doing the dishes or taking out the laundry or running errands. Like we may be frustrated. We may not want to do it, but we either do it or we don't do it. But when it comes time to get married or start a business or start a nonprofit or switch jobs or to go on that dream vacation or whatever, like we will start thrashing about it. And that's one of those things that I don't think we talk about enough is that the more something matters to us, the more we will thrash. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons why we need, we need more help with that. And that kind of ties into the talent myth that is pretty prevalent in our society that, you know, it it goes back to, um, we can go back to kindergarten and preschool, but there were those kids who were talented that when they tried something, it worked really well for them. So maybe they were five and already playing piano, or maybe they were five and able to write. And so, um, you know, very early on, we learned that there are some people who are good at things and they should go do those things. And if you're not good at those, if you're not good at something, then maybe you don't have a talent and maybe you should go find something else to do. So the first thing that happens is we start doing our best work and it gets hard for different reasons. Right. And we think, Oh, well, maybe I'm not meant to do it. Maybe I'm not good at it. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe. And we go through all these sort of existential rummaging about it. Um, and that keeps us from doing it. The second thing about it is, is that, um, it turns out that no one is sitting there waiting on you to do your best work. There's no one demanding that you go do that thing that's going to make you come alive. But there are lots of people demanding that you pay attention to them, right? And so when it comes time to their projects and their priorities, there are plenty of people who will get super frustrated if you don't pay attention to that in, in lieu of going and do your own thing. And so we have this sort of counter pressure from other people to do the things that basically keep us as supporting actors in their lives without us being the lead actor in our own life. Um, and so that's another major piece that we have there. The third piece is that um, a lot of times with Best Work Projects, like they are, it's it's a stacking the bricks problem, right? In that you put one brick and you put another, and you put another. And at some point it turns into a wall, but that first brick doesn't seem like it's going to be a wall. That fourth brick, still not a wall, right? Um, these types of projects take a amount of time and focus and they span over quarters, sometimes years. And the distant, the break in the analogy between eating ice cream is that like you're done in three to five minutes, unless it's a whole lot of ice cream and then it maybe take you seven minutes. I don't know. Right. You can finish it quickly, but writing a book does not happen quickly. Starting a, starting and building a business does not happen quickly. Building a thriving podcast that makes it seven seasons great job, by the way, and, and just good on you, right? That does not come quick. You got to stick with that stuff for a long, long time. And, you know, I, I had this moment where I was walking back from the coffee shop from writing and something had come up that threw me off my writing groove. And I was like, what is it about books that every time myself or one of my friends or colleagues or clients decides to write a book, 
all sorts of life starts happening to them. Like, you know, their parents need to move to elder care or, you know, their kid gets sick or they need to move or their their wife loses their job. And I was like, you know, that's the wrong frame. That's fundamentally the wrong frame. The challenge is this is the type of project that spans two to three years. And there's a lot of life that happens in two to three years. It just creates an organizing principle that you use that to interpret your experiences. Um, and so, like, anytime you choose to start a business, you're like, oh, it gets hard. Or you start to write a book, you're like, oh, it gets hard. No, like, there are things going on in your life already. You just didn't have an organizing principle. You didn't have a heuristic, as it were, to to associate with that particular project and, and what's going on. So it's like, no, 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 I'm not going to anchor the story that choosing to write a book means that something like disruptive is going to happen in my life. My life is going to go on its normal course and I'm going to write this book and start another one and keep, keep this progress going. So it's just stories like that, that you got to be super careful of. If I link a few things together there, Charlie, you talked about coffee and writing. What's a cold start routine and what is your cold start routine? So a cold start routine is um, a simple checklist that you make for yourself to get back into the flow after you've gone away from a certain type of activity or a project. Um, and so um, it, they're super helpful because a lot of times, especially with creative projects or projects that are going to take a while to see through, everyone's had this happen to them. Like you start working on it, you wrap it up and you tell yourself like you're going to get back into it later today or tomorrow or three days from now. And then life happens and it's like four weeks later and you're cold. Or you don't know what to do. You don't know where you are and you have to start all over again. Um, or this is something I don't think creatives talk about enough is that like you can be out of write, writing. I'm a writer primarily. And so, you know, if I don't write for seven to 10 days, I'm rusty when I pick it back up. Right. It's just, I have to go back through the motions, get my writing brain back on. So the cold start routine is literally what I do when I go down to the coffee shop. It's something that I have printed out in the yellow folder that's in my backpack. Um, and it's, it's as granular as step one, order coffee and get the password before you sit down. Step two, pull out the notebook and the writing log um, and review them while you're, um, while you're waiting for your coffee. Three, Write for 15 minutes um, in Ulysses or 750words.com before you jump into anything else. Five. I forgot what number I am, but you know, you, it's literally like do this in this order. Um, and by the time I go through that first, you know, 15, 20 minutes, I'm primed, I'm ready to write, I'm back into the project. It's way, way better than screwing around on social media for 60 or 75 minutes or wondering what I'm doing or sort of sitting there fidgeting um, because I'm not in the groove. And so I think for whatever it is, it sounds, um, some people think that's like super anal retentive, but I'm like, for me, like if I, if, if someone told me, if you follow this series of steps, you will inevitably produce, you know, between 100, between 1,200 and 1,500 words, every writing session. And they promised me that would work. I would like totally do that. And it turns out that my cold start routine does exactly that. It's funny, you know, when we do early morning interviews like this and I've got to get a, get out of bed at five o'clock in the morning, I have a similar list, you know, get out of bed, put on underwear, brush teeth, <laughs> just to get the day started. Yeah. The most important one on the list though, funnily enough, is make coffee. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you yeah, can do without absolutely. underwear, but coffee, unthinkable. <laughs> well, funny you should mention that. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, there's some things you can't unsee. I hope the cameras are off. Um, just to wrap this little shindig up, Charlie, if we go right back to where we started, you you deployed in the 101st Airborne in the Army, and that that is the elite of the elite. That's a place where you said excellence was the standard in everything you did, not something, everything. Does that still stay with you today, Charlie? Do you still fall back on that part of your identity? Does that standard and belief system still hold true in your SOPs today? I'm going to give a modified yes to that. Um, So here's what I mean by that. Um, There are some things that I've just chosen to be um, what my good friend Michael Bungay-Stanier has called acceptably mediocre at. Right. Um, just because, for instance, email, I'm not great at email. Um, I, you know, to be, to keep up with the volume of email that comes at me and to do that really well would displace so many other things that actually truly matter to me that if that means that a few times a week, I'm running behind on emails and things like that, then that's what I'm willing to do. Um, and so there are some places where it's just like, you know what? Okay. is great there. Like getting by completely fine. But when it comes down to core, um, other core things, like it's not acceptable for it to be less than excellent. And so that I think, and I had to learn that one the hard way because you're absolutely right. The 101st, and I, I go back to this a lot because I, even though I've been consulting for you know a decade and change, I still have to walk into an organization and remember that I'm not dealing with the 101st. I'm not dealing with the U.S. Army. Um, I'm not dealing with my own business at this point. And so there's certain things that I can't assume to be true. Um, And I have to ask a lot of questions about how things work because I don't know how they work. And that's the great thing about working in the 101st in the Army is you know how everything works. There are no questions, right? Um, And so, um, yeah, but I had to learn that you can't, at least I couldn't, maybe other souls are able to do it, but I couldn't be... Um, excellent at everything um, without burnout, without a, a cost that I was unwilling to pay. So there are areas in my life, and even when it comes time to things that matter for me, for instance, like while I was writing the book, um, I had a health thing come up. And, um, you know, so I wasn't able to go to the gym nearly as much. I wasn't able to prioritize in the same way that I had in the past. And so even during those periods, I was like, well, just where I am in this time, I can't be in the excellent physical condition that I would like to be in and balance all the priorities that I have right now. Um, so for me, it's that um, it comes back to choosing where you want to excel and what truly matters for you to excel in. Doing that and then choosing the other areas that you're either not going to do at all because you can't do it well or that you can do and be at peace with being acceptably mediocre at it. I like that modified yes. We actually had Michael on the show, gee, it must have been season three or four. Seems like such a long time ago now. Uh, just before I wrap up and wrap up and hand you over to Robbo, uh, Ryan Munsey, who's been a repeat offender on our show, repeat guest a number of times, a good mate of the show, who we met through podcasting, and he does the Better Human Project. He he said once to a guest that when he reads a book, he's saying to himself, what's the author 
trying to say in this book. I really liked your book a lot, and I'll cover off why as we close the show. What What's the author, Charlie, trying to say in Start Finishing? He's trying to say you're more capable than you probably give yourself credit for. Two, you're doing more than you're probably counting. And three, you have one precious life. Live it well. Gold. There's gold in them there hills. Uh, <laughs> do you, Charlie, do you have a quick 90 seconds before we wrap for a quick fire round of questions to get to know you? Are you? Do you have 90 seconds left? I have as many seconds as you would like, so yes. Well, let's take up 90 of those, shall we? <laughs> let's do it. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. Robbo's Nifty 90. All right, let's go. Lola, start the clock. Uh, what's your favorite pizza topping? Sausage. The last book you read? 50-75-100, and that's because I'm interviewing Brian Falchuk um, after this call. Oh, wow. Nice guy. We've spoken to him too. He's a great guy. You'll love that. Yep. Uh, what's your favorite sport or sports person and why? American football. Um, I, I grew up playing it and I love the combination of physicality, strategy, and the um, dynamism of the, of the sport. Besides the obvious one of the book, what's the last major project you finished? We have been in the middle of some new product development. And so um, we have completed the Momentum Planner cards, which are a companion to the planners that we have that help um, creative people and really all people um, chunk down their projects, make them happen. Finish this sentence for me. I never get tired of. My wife. Oh, there you go. There's the suck up answer. (laughs) It's also the true one. (laughs) Beautiful. Nice work. What's something you need to stop doing? Sitting on the couch rather than going down to the coffee shop when the weather, when it's raining. So it's the winter season in Portland right now. And so there are plenty of times where I'm like, eh, I don't want to go, but I just need to go. So I need to stop, um, stop weaning out of the rain and get there anyway. What's three words you'd use to describe yourself? This one's going to take me a second. <laughs> we try to make you think here on the Mojo Radio Show. Yeah, but give me 90 seconds to think about this one. Okay, identity <laughs> questions. Always the worst for me if you haven't figured that out. Um, strangely boring and interesting. <laughs> strangely boring yet interesting. Nice. I'll go with that. That's four, but that's perfect. Um, if you could have a plane ticket to anywhere in the world for you and your wife, where would you go and why? Hawaii at this point um, for the tropics and the sun. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Portland in winter, so no more. Uh, And the last one, the big one, you get out of bed in the morning. It's just not happening for you. You can't even, you know, get yourself, get the backpack on to get down to the coffee shop without a bit of help. What's the song that you turn on on Google Assistant, iPod, headphones, whatever your weapon of choice may be to get your mojo going? What's the song you turn on to get going? Brother Ali, what hearts are for? You're not using your heart for. What hearts are for? They've been trying to shut us down our whole life. I thank God for healing. You ain't got to get me lit. I got my own life. Thank God for listening. Listen, you've been trying to build me up my whole life. Nice. Now, let me ask you a quick question here. Go back on something you said earlier in the interview. If it was your old self, 
that was into the the heavy metal and the rock, what would it have been back then? Probably something by Alice in Chains. Um, probably Rooster. Yeah, here come the Rooster. Good answers in there, Gary. Top answers. Uh, Charlie, thank you so much for your time. Being a productivity guy, you said during the interview that not all emails are going to get a reply. You replied to us. You have been just terrific on the show, mate. I've really enjoyed. I've really enjoyed a couple of things. I've enjoyed chatting with you. I enjoyed hearing your view on productivity and where it meets life. I think the book is very, very prescriptive for anybody who really wants to get sorted. And I think I haven't dug into the actual book because I want people to buy it, to sit down, because I think having the resource of the book start finishing allows you to really understand the systems, processes, and philosophies, and then implement them. And I think it is a very, very well-written, well-put-together book, which actually is prescriptive. We don't have a lot of prescriptive books come through the show. And a lot of the people in the book, you've got the best of the best included. The other thing that I really like about your stuff, Charlie, is that on your website, there is a free download of loads of planners. And I thought that the Daily Momentum Planner, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, is probably one of the best physical outlines for someone to set up their day. A lot of people talk about it. I think that one really, I think it's an absolute cracker. So thank you for your time. Thanks for the work you've done so far. I think it's really good. I think it's making a great profound difference on people's lives, mate. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a blast. And anytime you want me to come back, I'm here for it. The Mojo Radio Show. You know, in the back of what we talked about at the front of the show, that is a very oh, timely hang interview. On, at, the, at, at the back of what we talked about, <laughs> at the front come, of the okay. show. Come, yes, okay, hang okay. On, let, me rephrase, let me rephrase. I just think that's very timely. Probably the motivation that some people may well need to implement what we were talking about. I think you're right. If you go back to what you said at the head of the show about getting through this period to get to the light at the end of the tunnel, I reckon there'll be a lot of people will have ideas will have thoughts, maybe even start to have a conversation with somebody, but then not proceed with it. And I think this interview is a classic example of it is taking the time to think about stuff. It is taking the time to know what's common, what's uncommon. If we did the reverse, we did the stairway to heaven on all the stuff we're talking about with the situation we're in in our category, our industry, our business, whatever it may be, sole trader, we get a hundred stuff, same deal as a leader. The next part of it though is the examples I gave at the head of the show about the gin distillery, they did it. Like you'll see, you'll see news articles now around the world, they're doing it. So they didn't have the idea. They had the idea and then executed it. They created a project out of it and now it's a thing. And this is going to be a long, long war. So I think you're quite right. This is actually a really, really timely interview with Charlie. Mm. Robbo's Remarkable Facts. Let's go. Okay, so we all know that kissing is good for you. Among other things, it gives your immune system a boost, lowers anxiety and blood pressure, and increases your sex drive, which in turn is also good for you. But did you know that kissing can also extend your life, fill your pockets with cash, and lower your chances of having a car accident? <laughs> Uh, negative, go. <laughs> a 10-year study 
undertaken in Germany during the 80s found that men who kissed their wives before leaving for work lived on average five years longer, earned 20 to 30% more than those who left without a pet goodbye. Researchers also reported that not kissing your wife before leaving the house in the morning increased the possibility of a car accident by 50%. (laughs) Obviously, psychologists don't believe the kiss itself accounts for the difference, but rather that those who were kissing were likely to begin the day with a positive attitude leading to a healthier lifestyle and more alert mental state as they hit the road. Now, the other thing... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Have a look at the voice booth. AP's pressed up against the glass, puckering up. (laughs) Come on, lads, come on, lads, come on. All I'm asking is for you to save a life. Kiss, kiss. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) Anyway, kissing's good for you, folks. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot. He dominated the pop and country charts in the 70s and 80s. He won three Grammy Awards, recently died of natural causes, probably one of the... Great country crooners, artists, performers of all time. I saw him live in concert. He was amazing. Such a true Las Vegas professional on stage. Who am I talking about? It was a warm summer's evening on a train bound for nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) It's Kenny Rogers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Gone but not forgotten. Do you know what? I grew up. Listening every family holiday, every school holidays, we would go on a driving holiday, and my father would play the best of Kenny Rogers over and that either that or Willie Nelson. We're not going out with Kenny, no. but just to play tribute to Kenny, here is a little, little, a little Lola. How about are you still there? I'm listening from your bunker, Lola. May we have a little Kenny Rogers? How's this one? I still recall the final words my brother said, Tommy. Son, my life is over, but yours has just begun. Promise me, son, not to do the things I've done. Walk away from trouble if you can. It won't mean you're weak if you turn the other cheek. I hope you're old enough to understand. This blew my mind the other night. I was cooking dinner in the kitchen and Jack was sitting on the kitchen bench talking to me and we were talking about music. And Jack said to me, had his, Jack had his phone and Spotify open and Jack said to me, have you ever heard this song and played The Gambler? And I went, yeah, that's Kenny Rogers. I grew up listening to that. He goes, me and my mate Ben, who's his best mate, Love Kenny Rogers, and he named a dozen songs, played a few on Spotify, and sang along. And I was like, "You like Kenny Rogers?" And he went, "Yeah, we just love the stories." And when I saw that he died over the weekend, I thought that that was just the best tribute that someone like Kenny could take to the grave with him. That my sixteen-year-old son, all these years later, is going, "I love the stories. I love the music." But, you know, it, do, it's, it does something for me. I think that's incredible. Well, maybe we should play out with some Kenny Rogers because if we go down that track, one of the great stories is the story about that young boy with the baseball and how quite often it's the confidence we have in ourselves 
that will get us through difficult times. So let's uh, let's get out with some Kenny. We're out. Little boy in a baseball hat stands in the field with his ball and bat. Says I am the greatest player of them all. Puts his bat on his shoulder and he tosses up his ball. The ball goes up and the ball comes down Swings is bad all the way around The world's so still you can hear the sound The baseball falls to the ground Now the little boy doesn't say a word Picks up his ball, he is undeterred Says I am the greatest there has ever been And he grits his teeth and he tries it again And the ball goes up and the ball comes down Swings his bat all the way around The world's so still you can hear the sound The baseball falls to the ground He makes no excuses, he shows no fear He just closes his eyes and listens to the cheers Little boy, he adjusts his hat Picks up his ball, stares at his bat Says I am the greatest, the game is on the line Gives us all one last time. And the ball goes up like the moon so bright, swings his bat with all his might. And the world's as still as still can be, and the baseball falls. And that's strike three. Now it's supper time. And his mama calls Little boy starts home With his bat and ball Says I am the greatest That is a fact But even I didn't know I could pitch like that Says I am the greatest That is understood But even I didn't know could pitch that good The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo you can now find us on Patreon Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com and to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.